Wait, what happened to Genesis? It's still there. (laughs) Just open your Bibles, right there. I will explain. We will come back to Genesis. But for now, Psalms 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? Is that not appropriate? (laughs) And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And we do, Lord. That is, take refuge in You this morning. And we ask that You will bless the teaching of Your Word. Not simply to our understanding, but Father, to our experience today. That these things that we hear and we learn from Your Word and by Your Spirit, Lord, that they would affect us and change us, impact us, and move in our lives. In a way, Lord Jesus, only Your Word, which does not come back to You empty, can do. Holy Spirit, may we hear You in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. The first place that many people turn to in the Bible whether they understand the Scriptures or not, whether they come with faith or not, the first place often tends to be the Psalms. And people think or realize that there's something of the Psalms, there's something of comfort there, there's, there's peace there, there's poetry there that is encouraging. And so strong or weak of faith, joyful or sorrowful, confident or insecure, people turn to the Psalms. We understand something about this book, that the Psalms are songs of and for the heart. There are 150 of them, organized into five books. Most of your Bibles will have those books listed out. It'll say book one, and you'll note that that begins with the first Psalm. And then book two picks up with Psalm 42, and then book three, Psalm 73. Book four is Psalm 90, and then finally book five picks up with Psalm 107 and runs all the way to the end of the 150. So five books in the Psalms, just like Torah, just like Torah law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Delich writes that Moses gave the Israelites the five books of the Torah, David gave them the Psalms. 
David is credited with writing more than half of these. Then Asaph gets credit for 12. The sons of Korah, well, they get credit for 12. Solomon is credited with two. And then one each by Aton and He-Man, like him. It's a master of the universe. And then finally, Moses, who wrote Psalm 90. The Jews referred to the Psalms as the Sefer Tehillim, which literally means the book of praises, because no matter how high they soar or how deep they dive, every single Psalm either praises God at some point or, or concludes with a note of praise to God. Every single one, with one exception, by the way, and that's Psalm 88. It's the only psalm that neither praises God nor goes anywhere. Well, good. It's a very depressing, dark song. It's called the Psalm of the Pit. And we will refer to it perhaps later in the summer. But every other one, so 149 out of 150 are songs of praise. And so the psalms. We get our our title psalms from the Greek word psalmos which is from the root word salo, which literally means pluck, snap, or twang. Now, I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, apparently, oh, what's what's their name? Anna Marie, you were telling me they just named their baby Psalms. Who is that? Oh, that's right. Kim Kardashian West and Kanye West just named their baby Psalms. In other words, his name is Twang. (laughs) Little baby Pluck. That's that's what his name means. The Hebrew equivalent of that is Mitzmor, which is literally a song with instrumental accompaniment. So a psalm is technically, literally a song that goes with plucking or twanging or snapping of a string. We're talking about stringed instruments like harps, lyres, lutes, lead guitar, whatever it takes. And that's what the Psalms mean. They're supposed to be musical, whether slow of music or exciting and and bright with music. They, They praise, they pray, they meditate, they intercede, they teach, they even call down curses if you're having a really bad day. So you can always look those up. They're called imprecatory psalms, and we'll see one of those later in the summer. Why why are we doing this right now? We're on a pause. I was ready to launch into Genesis. Some of you went out and bought new Bibles to prepare for Genesis today, and you're going to have to wait a couple more months. We have ten weeks. Ten weeks between now and Labor Day. And as I prayed about this and, and considered this and thought through it, it just didn't seem timely to begin Genesis just yet. We'll go back to the beginning, Lord willing, in September. But for the summer, Psalms, and not just any Psalms, there's no way we're going to cover 150 Psalms in this summer, in these months. But we are going to cover some 20 or so. And these are psalms that are vital to our faith and our understanding. And I think they will encourage you greatly. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And the book of praises contains all of that. 
The 150 psalms are not all psalms. Some are psalms, some are songs. As I said, some are prayers, some are meditations, some are imprecations, but all of these are to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. It's really the whole point of the Word of God. Prophetically presented here, we read, we see, we hear about the person of Jesus Christ. And what's remarkable is the Word of Christ in the Psalms, prophetically presented there, we not only see Jesus, but we hear Him. We hear Him literally speaking. Whether matching wits with the temple leaders at the age of 12 or countering the devil in the wilderness, or simultaneously schooling and stumping the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus quoted the Hebrew Scriptures often. What's ironic, and I've told you this before, is when Jesus is quoting the the Hebrew Scriptures, He's simply repeating what He already said. Because the Hebrew Scriptures come by the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ through the prophets about the Christ, and then Jesus comes along and quotes Himself. That's how it works. And he is present in all of this. The four most quoted books in the Hebrew Scriptures by Jesus, if you want to note this, are Exodus, which he quotes seven times, and then Isaiah, which he quotes eight times, Deuteronomy, he quotes ten times in the New Testament, which makes that a highly significant book. And then finally, he quotes the Psalms more than any other eleven times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The Psalms are the most quoted by Jesus. So let me explain to you what we're doing this morning and what we're doing this summer. We have 150 Psalms here. We're not going to get through them all. We will manage over the next 10 weeks between now and Labor Day, Lord willing, to perhaps cover about 20. Well, how do you decide which 20 Psalms to go through? We're going to look at the Savior Psalms. Specifically Psalms that are spoken of or speak of Christ the Messiah. So these are Psalms. Now, a lot of the Psalms speak about Jesus. A lot of them indicate Jesus. You'll read the Psalms and say, wow, that just sounds like Him. And in many cases, that's intentional. But the ones we're going to look at, you will either hear Him directly speaking these words, or these words will directly speak about Jesus Christ without any, unequivocally. You'll read these and say, wow, that is Jesus. You're going to recognize sayings like these. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Well, that's Psalm 34, verse 30, or verse 20. You will hear, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. Or lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king may come in. Psalm 24, 7. All about Jesus. You'll hear Jesus Himself saying, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of Me. Psalm 47. Even My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate My bread, has lifted up his heel against Me. Psalm 41, verse 9. My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Psalm 22, verse 1. And blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118.26. And it's just a taste, just to whet your appetite for all the times Jesus speaks in the Psalms. That we hear the voice of Messiah. Truly we hear the heart of Messiah saying, I want you to know me. I want you to experience me. I want this to be real for you as it is for me. Peter wrote, 
We actually heard this verse several times in our Revelation study, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, that the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Listen to that again. The Spirit of Christ was indicating within the hearts of the prophets the sufferings of Christ. And the glories to follow. What Peter claims, and I hope you see this, I hope you have seen this. What he claims and what we are continually confronted with in the Bible. From Genesis to the Psalms to the Revelation is the life of Christ is in these pages. That Christ is proclaimed. That Jesus is taught. It was after his resurrection that Jesus said to the disciples, Luke 24, 44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So, Lord, I pray you would open our minds to understand the Scriptures this summer. To hear your voice and to know Jesus in the Psalms. These are Savior Psalms. So as Les likes to say, let's get saved some more. Let's get into these. We begin with a Psalm that is quoted seven times in the New Testament. We'll see most of these twice in the book of Acts. Twice in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 5. And finally three times in the revelation of Jesus. This is the psalm of the Savior begotten. The early New Testament church confirms that David wrote it. In fact, that's how we know with certainty it was written by him. And we're going to see that momentarily. But while David put it to parchment, it's not called a psalm of David. If you note at the very beginning, there is no heading for it. In fact, some believe that Psalm 1 and 2 just kind of flow together. Most of the Psalms have a title that was written in the Hebrew that comes with the Psalm. This one doesn't. This one just launches. It's not a Psalm of David because truly all he's doing is writing down what the Father indicated. What he hears the Father saying. This is a Psalm of God. This is a Psalm where God is speaking and we hear God's heart in a truly intimate and surprising way. And so we look at verse 1 and God says, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. Yeah, why? I hear God say that in this Psalm and I totally agree. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Can't we all just get along? Can't we just have some peace on earth? Well, if you've wondered that over the last couple of weeks, God asked the question 3,000 years ago, why are the nations in an uproar? I mean, what startling relevance to have this question asked at the time of David, a thousand years before the Christ, 2,000 years before this morning, God was asking what we asked. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why is this taking place? What's up with this world And here we are at the end of the age. Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 6, You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. You'll be hearing 
arguments and debates, democratic and otherwise, fights going on, people at odds. We see it in the Middle East. One of the more famous things that Benjamin Netanyahu ever said was if the Arabs put down their weapons today, there would be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there would be no more Israel. And it's a true statement. But I want you to understand and note this. When God says, why are the nations in an uproar? That word uproar is ratsu. In Hebrew, literally translated to be in a rage. In a, in a tumult. But it's not just nation raging against nation. It's not that we are raging against ourselves. This is a rage as a result of plotting or muttering against someone in particular. And God recognizes with great surprise that the rage is against Him. That the uproar is opposition to His anointed. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel or literally mutter murderously. To take counsel here is a murderous muttering. They take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Mashiach, Messiah, Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In Hosea, Chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord said, I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. The cords, the fetters, if you will, of God are gentle and they are leading. They are bonds of love, but the rebellious heart wants to cut the cord. Rebellious man says, I don't want to have any connection, any tie to you, God. Set me free, he says, like, like a drowning man thrashing away, trying to free himself from a life preserver that was given to him. Can you imagine being in the middle of a frothing ocean and a life preserver is thrown and the first thing you do is pull out a knife to cut the rope so that you can't be pulled to safety? And that's what's happening when rebellious man looks at God and says, No, I don't want your, your imposition, and I don't want your cords, and I don't want your chains, and I don't want your religion, and I don't want any of these things. And a group of early believers understood this psalm to find its apex at that moment of time when the rage against the salvation of God came to a frothing head. If you keep your finger in Psalm 2 and go all the way over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Early in the history of the church. In fact, not long after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin. The same ruling council of Jews that had called for the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, think about that. You're part of a group of people, and one in that group, the leader of the group, gets executed, and then you're called before the same council. What do you think is going to happen? And they stand before the Jewish ruling council, Peter and John. And it's a marvelous moment. You can read about it in the first half of of Acts chapter 4, but they stand there and they they just proclaim, we can't help talking about what we've seen. You decide whether or not it's right, but we got to talk about Jesus. We know who He is. They couldn't shut Him down. And, and the ruling class recognized Peter and John as having been with Jesus. 
Well, verse 23 says, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. This is the church. This is the little gathering of saints there in Jerusalem. They lifted their voices to God with one accord. Honda's been around a long time. And they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by your Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, so this is how we know Psalm 2 was written by David, your servant said, and they quote, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed, his Mashiach. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So the kings of earth, the peoples of the earth, they recognize that application to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of your threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. You know, I read that and I wonder today if a gathering of the saints would pray that same prayer or if instead we would pray, Lord, surround us with a hedge of protection. Keep us, Lord, from those who threaten us. Close the door. Lock us up. Keep us safe. Don't let any bad thing happen to us. Oh, Jesus. And they say, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence or boldness while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And I wonder, do we have that kind of boldness today? Do followers of Jesus sense that kind of presence of the Spirit, a boldness that is room shaking? By the way, have you ever done that? You know, been in a prayer group and you were all so into it and you were all so excited that when someone said amen, you kind of waited just to see. Is the room going to (laughs) shake? Do we have that kind of boldness? Now granted, these are the early days of the church. They're passionate. They're excited. They had seen Jesus. The leaders of the church specifically had watched Him ascend to heaven. They knew what was going on and they couldn't help themselves, but they were filled with the Spirit. The same Spirit that fills you and fills me today. And I'll tell you, my friends, this kind of boldness does not come by way of political will. We're going to stand up against this world. And it doesn't come by groupthink. If we just get enough, not enough of us to, to agree to the same thing. It doesn't even come of buildings being shaken. It comes as the Spirit of God moves in a people to raise their voices for, rather than to rail against, Christ Jesus. And Him crucified. You see, it's the Spirit in us with the message of Christ to the world that produces boldness. And when people rage against the anointed Christ, what do you do? How do you respond? Shrink back? Hebrew writer says, we are not of those who shrink back. No, we press on. We have a boldness that doesn't come from us. 
It doesn't come from our personalities. It doesn't come from our training. It doesn't come from our experience. Our boldness comes by the Spirit of the living God. A boldness to stand in a raging world. And I'll tell you something. When the world rages against the anointed Christ, God just shakes His head in utter dismay. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And for years I would read this and wonder, what exactly does that mean? God is laughing at the world? How so? This is not a laugh of pleasure or spitefulness. It's a laughter of incredulity. That is, it is the ridicule of the ridiculous. That these puny kings on planet earth are raging against me? Or more so even than that? You're going to bite the nail-scarred hands that feed you? You're going to deny the thorn-pierced brow that would plead for you? You're going to snub the blood that can save you? God is not amused. He is bemused. And Kidner says in his commentary, it becomes very plain that the only laughing matter is the arrogance itself, not the suffering it will cost before it all ends. And so the astonished laughter of God bursts out here in verse 4 and then quickly turns to holy anger in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion, my holy mountain. Does that do something to you? I I told you recently, I believe that it was years ago that I finally understood the place of Jerusalem in prophecy. And began to study that and think about Zion and what it truly means, how important it is to God. You know, whether we understand it or not, or consider Jerusalem beautiful or not, it is vitally important to God. And over the years we've talked about and looked at these things, Psalm 48, verse 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Truly, Jerusalem is 2,550 feet above sea level. So it is a mountain. It is high above. It is beautiful in elevation. And Psalm 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. I have installed my king. Where, Lord? In Zion. Upon my holy mountain. I have installed him. Now that word installed. You Bible students, you might want to jot this down. It's nasakti. Nasakti, write it down however you need to, but that's the Hebrew word, and it literally means, installed means to pour out. How does, how do we get installed from pour out? Well, you pour out the oil of anointing when a king is anointed, when a king is installed. When someone is set into office, whether it's a priestly office or a royal kingly office, or even an, an office of, of the prophet, They were installed. They were nasakti. It was poured out. So what's being said here where he says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, it's recalling God's promise 
to David through Natan the prophet. So you might just note this, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 says, When your days are completed, Natan is speaking to David. When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish him. I will install him. Behold, I have installed my king, God says. More and more, it seems like people are raging against Basic Christian values. More and more there is an anger, not even just a bland tolerance, as I would say went on in much of my earlier life. But in our culture, there is more and more a raging against those who would just stand up and promote Christian values. The California just has had a bill introduced in their assembly, which is calling upon all pastors not to speak anything negative against the LGBTQ community. This is a bill in a state house? What bi- can I just say this? Okay, Rick's high horse. What business does the government have in the church of God? <laughs> stay out of my business, man, and I'll stay out of yours because I don't really want to get involved in government anyway. And I'm not trying to sound seditious, but when the governments begin to tell pastors you cannot speak things that literally are written in the holy word of God, I got a problem with that, folks. And I hear things like that. And I read that. And if you guys get uh, Prophecy News Watch, that was up on Prophecy News Watch this last week. And there are several different prophecy websites. And be careful because some are a little nutty. Some just want to freak you out for your money. But if you read these things and you're aware of what's going on, you can start to get a little nervous. Start to worry. I remember after the first church shooting... I really wasn't sure if I wanted to sit up here on a Sunday morning. And sometimes you you read things and you hear things and you go, man, it's just so discouraging. Brothers and sisters, do not be dismayed. We have a king. We have a king who's been installed. Okay, this is not a hopeful thing, hoping against hope. Maybe someday it'll happen. Hold on, church. No, no, our king has been installed. We have a ruler who we can count on. And as the election cycle heats up, and you've already heard some of the debates going on among the Democrat candidates, and Trump's tweeting on one side, and they're debating on the other, and you're looking at it going, here we go again. Strap in. It's going to be a long year and a half. No. We have a king. I have installed my king upon my holy mountain, upon Mount Zion. Trust in that. Because, brothers and sisters, Revelation 19.16 says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is our Jesus. So it's going to be alright. It's going to be okay. Do not be dismayed. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now Jesus is speaking. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You can also probably more literally translate this. I will surely tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now it's not that different, but it's just a little bit more emphatic. Here's the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, this is Jesus suddenly speaking here. How do you know it's Jesus? Well, it's much too big to be David. Way too big to apply to one king over one nation at one point in the history of the world. This is the only begotten Son of God who is recognizing the day of His begottenness. And this is so important for you all to get. The word begotten, yeledti, is literally translated beget. It's the word that is used in the Bible for birth. Today I have birthed you, you might say. But it is also translated, bring forth. Today I have been brought forth. Today I have brought you forth. Jesus declares that the Lord is saying, I brought you forth today. Now, this idea of begottenness is one rejected by Islam. In fact, in an obvious swipe at Judaism and Christianity, the Quran says that God is not begotten, neither does He beget. It's in the Quran. It's scrawled across the top of the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount today. God is not begotten, nor does He beget. Well, Muhammad, if God is not begotten, could you explain to me how we all got here? If God does not beget... How are we? How has anyone been born if God does not beget? You see, what that statement does at the outset is it denies creation. It just forgets creation. God does not beget. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, I'm looking right now at an auditorium filled with people begotten. You would not be here if God does not beget. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God begets. He did with the first man. He did with the first woman. And by the way, he did and has with every man and woman ever born into this world. God begets. Psalm 139.13 For you formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My friends, God brings forth life. God begets. Which is why you exist. And if you're waffling on faith or a non-believer, understand you wouldn't even be, wouldn't even be here to, to waffle this morning if God did not beget. He gave you life. Gave me life. Talk about a raging world. In 2018, Planned Parenthood paid for and provided 332,757 abortions. That's just Planned Parenthood. And that was all in one year. More Abortions in 2018 than in any previous year. It just continues to climb. And I mention that simply to say that the life versus abortion debate that continues to rage in our country is far more personal than it is political. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, Green Party, 
socialist nutcase. I don't care what you are. It's not a political discussion. It is a personal discussion. It is not about opinions or rights. It is about God-begotten life. And humanity does not have the right to take away God-begotten life. See, God does beget. But the Quran forgets creation. You know what else the Quran denial does? It forsakes Christ. And that's kind of the point. God is not begotten, nor does He beget. Well, Psalm 89, verse 27, prophesied, I shall also make Him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Unless anyone might miss this, if you'll turn back to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 31, either turn there or just listen to this. You know the story. The angel came to Mary. In verse 30, he he said to her of Luke chapter 1, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The angel says to Mary, you've got to put yourself in Mary's sandals and wonder what is she thinking at this moment? First of all, the shocking realization that she's pregnant and she knows it's impossible. And she says to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and he said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. And then the story goes on from there. Listen, for you Bible scholars, note this. It's interesting. Holy Child. He says the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Holy Child in the Greek is Hagion. Holy and Genomenon, seed. The Holy Seed. The Holy Seed will be called the Son of God. The Holy Seed. It draws us all the way back to the earliest prophecy of this Holy Seed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, Satan. And you shall bruise him on the heel. And so again, from Genesis to the Psalms to the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. It is all about Jesus. The begottenness of the Son of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, there are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation. Can't let it go. The revelation of Jesus. And what the Koran does is it forgets creation, it forsakes Christ, and it fails to comprehend Psalm 2. And this is most important because a lot of Christians fail to comprehend what is being said in this psalm when Jesus says, I heard him say, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Oh, birth of Jesus. People will say. And we just read Jesus came into the world as the power of the Most High overshadowed Mary. But something Muhammad and 
other false teachers try to ignore, what they really fail to comprehend is this. His begottenness, that is the day Jesus was officially brought forth as Son of God, did not happen in a manger in Bethlehem. It happened in a tomb outside Jerusalem. The begottenness of the Son of God. Paul makes it very clear. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Acts chapter 13. In fact, turn to Acts 13. Check this out. Paul is out on his first missionary journey. And it's one of the most amazing sermons of Paul. Early on in his missionary career, and yet stunning in its application. And Paul will now quote, this is another quote of Psalms 2, verses 7 through 9. Paul takes that up as the text for his sermon in Acts chapter 13, verse 26. Listen to this. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning Him. And though they found no ground for putting Him to death, they asked Pilate that He be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning Him, they took Him down from the cross and they laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is a resurrection promise, brothers and sisters. His begottenness is declaring in, is declared in His revel, uh, resurrection. Verse 34, As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, He no longer to return to decay. He has spoken to you in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's Isaiah 55. Therefore, He also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay That's Psalm 16. We're going to get to that, I think, Wednesday night. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The resurrection, go back to Psalm 2, the resurrection is the begottenness of the Christ. It's the crowning inauguration, if you will, when Christ was brought forth as Son of God installed, anointed as King of Kings. And then in verse 8, he continues to say, as the Father is telling him, Jesus says, the Father said to me, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So when the devil offered Jesus the same thing, he'd already heard it. 
In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, we're told that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan offers the very thing God had already offered Jesus. The kingdoms, the nations of the world. Well, how could Satan offer that? Because they're his. Because as the God of this world, as he is called, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, as the New Testament refers to Satan, he has usurped ownership of this world. And so he takes Jesus up to the mountain and says, look at this. All the glory of man. It's mine, I'll give it to you. So long as you will worship me. And so all the kingdoms of the world, commandeered by evil, offered now as a fast track to domination. See, this is the way Satan thinks. Whereas God has complete dominion, Satan thinks domination. And offers that to Jesus because that's as high as the mind of the enemy can go is power and domination and usurping authority and holding sway over others. That's what it's all really about to the devil. Not to Jesus. Jesus is able to say, go away, Satan. Stop bothering me. You shall worship the Lord only. See, Jesus knew better. His Father had already offered it. And Jesus knew He would receive from the Father the Father's way. And no other way. Because for Jesus, it's not about world domination. It's about righteous dominion. It's about a righteous rule. You know, in thinking about that whole temptation of Satan, and the fact that God had already offered Jesus complete rule and authority over all the nations... I realize that there are really just two ways to gain power in this world. Whether it's a little bit of power, say in the workplace or at home, or a whole lot of power over a nation or many kingdoms, there are only two ways to gain authority. There's the devil's way, which is others trampling. It's expedient, tends to be immediate, and it's always temporary. And then there's God's way, which is... Self-sacrificial. It's altruistic. It's patient. And it's permanent. We need to evaluate these two. Because we can easily get caught up, especially when it comes to moments of authority, or power, or bossing it. We can get caught up in Satan's way. This feels good, it feels right, and I want to do this now! (laughs) Or we can go God's way, which sometimes doesn't feel good in my flesh. Sometimes it involves me stepping back. It involves self-sacrifice. It involves putting others first. As we saw God do in the person of Jesus in His first coming. He just came and He put the world before Himself. And that's God's way to dominion rather than domination. Well, back in Psalm 2. Verse 9 then says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Okay, hang on, Rick. It just sounds like everything you said is wrong. Because now, he's talking about breaking and shattering and a rod of iron and a smacking over the skull. I mean, come on. 
What's going on here? We looked at this verse recently when we were in Revelation. In fact, it brings us to the last three quotations of Psalm 2, and they're all three in Revelation. The verse we see, Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, referring to Jesus saying, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then Revelation 19, verse 15, And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. But if you recall, as we learned in our Revelation studies, this staff, this rod of iron is the unbending staff of a shepherd. Note this, in the Hebrew, you shall break them with a rod of iron is also translated... You shall shepherd them with a staff of strength. And I'm not taking away from the rule with the rod of iron. He has every right to rule. And his rod is solid. And it is secure. And it is unwieldy. And it is unbending. But Bible students, even the word for rod, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That word has a first use in the Bible. We'll find out when we go to Genesis how important that is, that words of first mention, first time a word is used in the Scriptures, often gives us indication of what that word is really about. And the first time the word rod is used in the Bible, it's not a rod Gilmore. Sorry, rod. The first time the word rod is used, it's Shabet. Shabet. And it refers to an early prophecy of the shepherd Savior. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And Shabbat is the word scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff. And here, he will rule them with a scepter. A rod, a staff, if you will. It is a shepherd's staff of unbending authority. And you might say, yeah, but the psalm still says, even if you translate, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shepherd them with a scepter of strength. You still have the last half of the verse. You shall shatter them like earthenware. What do you do with that? Who is he going to shatter? Only those foolish and vain enough to headbutt the shepherd's staff. See, you can be led by the staff and it is strong and secure. And even the psalmist says in Psalm 23, comforting. You can be led by a shepherd you can trust who you know has a staff to ward off the enemy and to fight away those who would harm. Or you can go head to head with that staff. And if you go head to head with that staff, you will be shattered like earthenware. Interesting word, earthenware, it refers so much to our flesh. In fact, we see it in the Bible used as a description of our flesh. We are in these earthen vessels. These vessels of pottery. I mean, that's how fragile we truly are. As arrogant as we can be, we are all as fragile as earthenware. And God knows we need saving. You know, maybe there's an aspect of salvation you haven't thought about. You need to be saved out of your own body because your own body's not going anywhere. Your own body's not doing well. Some of your own bodies are doing worse than others, but your own body 
Things break. If you wondered why I was wearing this little brace on my finger, I broke my finger. Last year in Israel, I broke my pinky. Well, it's doing great now. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. But I broke my finger. Rick, how'd you break your finger? You're going to love this. I rolled over on it in my sleep. I am not kidding. I woke up and I said, Ow! And Cheryl said, What? And I said, My finger hurts. And I looked at it and I tweaked it a little bit and it's all swollen. I'm like, I broke my finger sleeping. Who does that? Man, I need calcium or something. These bodies are fragile, folks. They are earthenware vessels. And if you would go head to head with the ruling shepherd's staff, you're going to be shattered. It will break you. Man, we need saving. Can you accept that? Can you accept that you're not as strong as you think you are? Can you allow for the fact that perhaps I do need a crutch to walk? That maybe I do need one greater than me to lift me out of this life ultimately? Because the Bible tells us this earthenware must put on the eternal. Or as Paul put it, 1 Corinthians 15.53, this mortal must put on immortality. What's really cool to me is that the offer of salvation is there. The offer to be shepherded, the offer to be, to be led by a strong, certain staff, it's there. But you know what's even more amazing to me is there's another offer on the table referred to in Psalm 2, verse 9, quoted in the book of Revelation. We read about it in Revelation 2.27 where this verse, this verse, this promise, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. It's a promise not only of the Lord Jesus, but to the overcomer. Listen to this. Revelation 2.26 He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? I want you on my staff. You get that? On my staff? You too can be on his staff. I want you to rule with me. I still get a tickle from that. It just thrills me. We spent most of the last end of of studying Revelation recognizing that we rule and we reign with Him in the Millennial Kingdom for a thousand years. And if that weren't enough, on into the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, ruling there with Him, on into eternity. What's that going to look like? We still don't fully know. But Jesus offers, He takes this promise. The Lord says to Him, you shall shepherd them with a strong staff. And Jesus turns right around and says, hey, you want to shepherd with me? You want to be on my crew? You want to be on my staff? How about being part of my holy government? I offer that to you. Wow! Amazing! He will share His begotten authority. He will glorify these earthenware bodies for an eternal reign with Him. Wow! What do we do with all this? 
And we get through verse 9, and it's just, wow, it's almost like an addendum to the Revelation study, right? I mean, we're still there. (laughs) What do we do with this, Lord? Well, He tells us, picking up in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges or leaders of the earth. Show discernment. Take warning. You might say, be wise and be warned. Be wise and be warned. O kings, O rulers, O leaders. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but but the Lord weighs the hearts. He's looking at your heart. He's looking at mine. And I'm reminded in thinking about this as he calls upon us to take, to show discernment, to take warning. You might say, well, that's for kings and judges of the earth. Hey, it's for anyone in any position of leadership. If you would lead well, and you could be a prime minister or a parent. You could be a husband and a wife, a boss, teacher, youth worker, friends. Any position that you find yourself where you're in authority over another person, if you would lead well, be wise. Be warned. How? Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with with trembling. Worship the Lord. Praise, glorify with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. These two go together so well. You know, we need both. We truly, as followers of Jesus, we need both. We need rejoicing and trembling. Worship and reverence. It's not an either or. You see, rejoicing without trembling... Well, that just produces vain, meaningless, empty-headed frivolity. That's what the world does. The world rejoices without trembling. Parties without thinking. Expresses happiness, but there's vanity to it because there's no meaning there. And Jesus said, this is the way it's going to be right before I come. Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven: For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And note that those who are taken away, those who go into judgment, those who are wiped out by the coming of the Son of Man are those who are just into empty headed rejoicing. No trembling. Just partying. Life's good. Marrying, giving in marriage, doing the whole thing. That's rejoicing without trembling. And it doesn't get you anywhere. On the other hand, trembling without rejoicing develops dark, grumpy, self-involved anxiety. I think we see that in some churches. Trembling without rejoicing. Fear without any kind of joy. Follow the Lord. And be, I can't do it. Be afraid. Be very afraid. 
No, no, you missed the point. Rejoice with trembling. Worship with reverence. Proverbs 28.14 says, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So fear the Lord, but don't harden your heart. Tremble, but still rejoice. Fear God with trembling. Approach the Lord with the joy of, of a son and the trembling of a servant. That's the right attitude. And then verse 12 says, Do homage to the Son. Do homage to the Son. That word homage or homage, that is nasaku, and it literally is translated kiss. Kiss the Son. Some of you might think, now that's going too far. We're not talking about romantic kissing here. In fact, it would be similar as greet one another with a holy kiss. That's not romantic either. And in the Middle East, I might add, greeting one another with a holy kiss, that was mainly men to men. So any of you guys who want to greet one another with a holy kiss, feel free. Don't greet the women that way. And by the way, don't greet me that way either. But you know, the kiss that's being talked about here, kiss the sun. If we're translating literally, nasakyu means to kiss, but it's a, a gesture of submission. So it's, it's like a vassal kissing the hand of his or her Lord. It's like kissing the ring of the king. And what's kind of funny to me is the same word for kiss also is used of the lick of a puppy on its master's hand. This is the right attitude coming to Jesus of kissing the son. Kiss the son, he says, That he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon become kindled. Oh, see, I don't like the thought of an angry God. I I, I, I don't, I don't, that whole trembling, angry Old Testament God. By the way, you know, there's no such thing as just an Old Testament God. Same God, same Jesus. Same anointed one in the Old Testament, as we might call it, the Older Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, as we see in the New Testament, same God, same compassion, same grace, same loving kindness, same long-suffering, same patience, same God. But I don't like the idea of an angry God. Wait. Ask yourself this question. Does he have a right to be angry? He absolutely does. As our sovereign, as our maker, as the one who begets, as the eternal one, I would say God has every right to be angry when His children so foolishly rage against Him. Yes, He has the right to be angry. And anyone who's ever been a parent knows the feeling. When your kids are being little snot-nosed brats, and I've never had any of those, but if... Excuse me? Any parent who's ever looked at their child and said, Excuse me? What did you just say to me? Does God have a right to be angry? Absolutely. But it goes further than His innate right as our Creator God. He gave up all rights. All personal rights. First from heaven to earth, and then from earth to the cross. Jesus took the raging, rebellious sin of the world on His back so that He might save us. Now ask yourself, does He have a right to be angry? Does the Father have the right to be angry when He sacrificed the Son so that puny humanity might be saved? 
Don't forget, in all of this, and even when you read of the anger of God toward rebellion, don't forget, especially here, this is a Savior psalm. And this Savior psalm is not an historical account. It is prehistorical prophecy. What do you mean? It was written down a thousand years before Jesus was begotten, brought forth as Son of God in His resurrection. And it was written then and revealed in Jesus, proving once and for all that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And when I think of an angry God, it makes me bow deeper. It makes me love more. Because you know what? There would be no anger there if He wasn't so passionately in love with humanity. If God didn't love so much, there would be zero emotion. Les and I were praying before service and talking about the fact that God is not to be studied and God is not to be intellectually understood. God is to be experienced as your Father, as your God, as your Savior, as your love. And there is passion in Him because He loves so deeply, so richly. And the psalm ends, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Kidner says there is no refuge from Him, only in Him. That is so good. Let me say that again. There is no refuge from Him. There is only refuge in Him. Psalm 5.11 says, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. I don't know about you, but this summer, I could use some rest. Coming out of Revelation, I loved it. I love studying through that. It's my favorite book in the Bible, but man, it's intense. And if you think the preaching of Revelation is intense, you ought to be in my office during the week and hear the, oh man, and whoa, look at that, and I didn't know that before, and hey, where'd that come from? I mean, all week long, just, oh, you know, Cheryl would see me walk in the door just wiped out. What are you so tired from? Revelation. <laughs> well, why are you preaching? Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's just the best. <laughs> I finished that last teaching and I closed my Bible and I got in my car two weeks ago Sunday and I just sat there for a minute and I just said, Lord, so here we are again. You know, the Revelation study, we've been through your word, we've seen so much of you and it's, and it's marvelous and you're wonderful, but, but now here we are again. And I just... I had so much peace in the moment just thanking God that for all the study and all the stuff that we go through in life, He's still just right there. And so this summer, I began thinking about, do we want to launch into Genesis? I mean, this is a big deal. It's a great book. But Genesis, I mean, it's the bookend to Revelation. It's intense. It's awesome. And I started praying, Lord, I don't know, honestly, if my heart is ready to jump back to Genesis yet. And I realized it wasn't that I didn't know if my heart was ready. 
I realized that the Lord had put it on my heart to do something else. And I'll put it to you all this way. This summer, I think we need to lie down in green pastures. And I think we need to be led beside quiet waters. And I don't know about you, but I need my soul to be restored. And so we're in the Psalms. And not just the Psalms, but the Savior Psalms. To experience Jesus, to be led by Jesus, because I know of no more restful place, no greater refuge, than to be with the Savior Jesus Christ. Holy Father, Savior begotten Jesus Christ, we bow before You this morning. So thankful that that strong staff is so secure. So thankful as we've studied and we look at that You have been installed on Zion. That You are King of Kings. That nothing gets by You. That You are a stable and sure and powerful Father and God and King and Ruler and Majesty. And all of that, Lord, we can look and know You are secure. But to know You as Savior, to hear You speak with gentleness, to walk alongside You as as shepherd, Lord, This season just seems right for that. And I thank You that You have given us the Savior Psalms. And I thank You that You have chosen to shepherd us. That You are the shepherd king of Your people. And I pray, Father, for our fellowship this summer. I I don't know that... I mean, I'm sure not everyone's in the place that I am at. In fact, we're all in different places this summer. This June 30th. We all have different experiences. We have different heights of joy and depths of of sorrow. We all have different experiences of life. And and yet, Lord, You are our great shepherd and our Savior. Thank You for allowing us to rest in You. Thank You for Shalom and Shabbat, for peace and and for rest. And I pray, Father, that there might be a strengthening of our spirits through this summer and a restoring. Perhaps, Father, to the very joyful, there will be a restoring of trembling. And to those who tremble, there will be a restoration of rejoicing and a strengthening. Oh, Lord, restore our souls that so often get beaten down in this world. Fill us again with the joy of our salvation. Create in us, as David prayed, clean hearts. Renew, Father, right spirits within us. Lord, we love You and we need You. And I ask this morning, Holy Spirit, simply that You will continue Your ministry to us in this place now. In Jesus' name. Amen.